All right, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all this morning. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here at Cross Point Church. And today we are going to be continuing in our series that we're calling Redefining the Good Life. And Redefining the Good Life is uh, what we're talking about is, you know, everyone sort of has this idea of the, what the good life is, you know, having a life where you can do what you want, where you want, when you want, and all that great stuff. And what we're saying during this series is that God also talks about the good life all over his word, and it's usually pretty different than whatever we think the good life is. And so we want to know what God's definition is of the good life rather than our own. Because wouldn't it be horrible to get to the end of your life and finally arrive at what you thought was the good life and realize that you're chasing after the wrong thing? I mean, that happens all the time. And so today... Uh, I want to present to you a very simple truth from God's Word. And that truth is this. The good life is not about me. It's not about me. The good life is not about me. It's not about you. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Now, how many of you enjoy a good Christian book? How many of you enjoy reading a good Christian book? I I do too. I'm specifically talking about books that are written by, uh, not the Bible. I'm talking about other Christian books, but thank you for pointing that out. (laughs) Uh, Now, I I enjoy a good Christian book as much as the next person. Um, But even the best Christian books are flawed. Even the best ones. One of my favorite authors uh, was was Jerry Bridges. He he passed away uh, back in March, not that long ago, at 86 years. He, He wrote... Over 20 books over the course, course of 40 years, he wrote some amazing books, some of my favorite books. Uh, one of his best-selling books is called The Pursuit of Holiness. He, he was one of his first books. It sold over a million and a half copies. Um, and I want to show you what the book, the cover of a couple of the books, this is one of them. It says The Pursuit of Holiness. And as you can see on the cover is pictured a person walking across a desert alone. The Pursuit of Holiness. Uh, the next cover I'm going to show you is the copy that I have. And that cover shows a, another person, a man, running a race. And he's all by himself. On the back of, the, of both copies, we read a summary of the book. It says, Holiness, the Christian's joint venture with God. Well, what's wrong with that? Well, the message here is that holiness is a good but solitary pursuit. And that is simply not true at all. In fact, if you get into the book, you find that every chapter centers on the individual rather than the community of faith. And so the book, while it's a great book, and there's so much we can glean from from that work, it, it, it really falls short of what the Christian life is all about. Some people consider The Pursuit of Holiness to be one of the best books on the Christian life ever written. And yet it completely, I mean almost completely leaves out the power of growing in holiness in a community, in a gospel community. It's not about walking across a desert alone or running a race alone. Another book, and I hate to bring this book up because it's one of the best-selling books of all time, The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan, right? Written in the late 16 or 1700s. That book, again, um, is an allegory. And that book is about a a lone pilgrim called Christian who leaves his wife and children behind to make the journey to the celestial city. And along the way, he, he, 
He's joined here and there by temporary traveling companions. And here's one of the covers. It shows, a, a, again, a solitary person uh, walking down a path. Um, show the next slide. Here's another cover. And here he is again, Christian, and someone, he's, Christian is the one with the big burden on his back, and someone is just pointing him the way to go next, and he just kind of goes on, mostly by himself, through, through a lot of the book. And again, the, the Pilgrim's Progress is an amazing book. It's a, it's a beautiful picture of what the Christian life is, but it fails, it fails to emphasize the importance of gospel community in our journey to the celestial city. It's just not there. It's just not really there. You've probably, many of you have heard, heard of the poem uh, Footprints by Mary Stevenson. And I'm going to paraphrase. I think it's called Footprints or Footprints in the Sand or something. Um, it's, it's a touching poem about a person who's reflecting back on their life. And as they look back on their life, they see uh, a, um, two sets of footprints in the sand. You know, one set of footprints is theirs. The other set of footprints is God's or Jesus' footprints. And then during the most difficult times in their life, they see there's only one set of footprints. And they, they say to God, God, you know, thanks for everything, but how come in the most difficult times in my life, there was only one set of footprints? Where were you during those times? And God, of course, says back to her, those are my footprints during the most difficult times of life, Right? And it's, a, it's really a touching poem, but again, it falls terribly short of the right picture of what our lives with God are all about. It's not about one or two sets of footprints in the sand. Show the next slide. It's more like that. There's just footprints everywhere because God uses so many different people in our lives to take us from where we are to where we're destined to be. It's not just about us and God. It's not about just us and God. It's not about, it's not about me. It's about so many other people. It's about community. And so what I want you to know today is that change and discipleship is a community project. It's not a solo mission at all. It's a community project. And if change is a community project, then my life and my choices are not mine alone. And so today I want to talk specifically about choices and a little bit about how we make decisions. But next week, just to give you a heads up, the Reverend John Schmicke is going to be uh, preaching again next week, and he's really going to focus on what it means to make decisions in light of God's sovereignty. But today I want to talk more about how we make choices as individuals who belong to a community, a gospel community. Now, many years ago, uh, my family traveled to a family reunion. It was uh, at, a, at this big conference center uh, down south. And we happened to be staying in this, um, this big facility. And in there was another, another group of people, including a worship band that was there for this huge student retreat. And there were hundreds of students there, and we got to listen to this band perform, and they were just amazing. Amazing, just super talented and dynamic and powerful. It just blew us away how talented they were. And we got to talk with the leader of the band at one point during the week. And he shared with us how he had been uh, built up and trained and equipped at this great church in Kentucky, I think it was. It was a pretty big church. And he had grown in his faith there and he was being used by God. And then kind of out of nowhere, he got an offer from this huge church in California 
And I want you to think, I'm not going to name the church, but just think, think huge. It's like the biggest church in California. And he was really flattered that they would want him to be part of their ministry, their growing, thriving ministry. He couldn't believe that this church wanted him. It was just, an, he thought, and he described it this way, this is a one, it was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, and I just couldn't pass it by. And so he took the job. He gave his church a, a few weeks to figure things out, and then he, he was out of there. And I couldn't help but thinking to myself, why? You know, why leave this family that's poured everything into you for just a bigger audience? I mean, it reminded me of so many stories I've heard of pastors who are working and building and investing into people and growing their gifts. And then after a few years, they announce to their congregation that they've received a call from another congregation. And that's the first most of their congregations even heard about it. No one even knew the pastor was looking for another church or a better opportunity or a new start. And that, my friends, is professionalism. That's what it is. It's professionalism. That's a choice. That, that, that's not a choice that's made with others in mind. That's a leader who thinks this is all about me. And that's how many leaders operate, sadly, today. And how some leaders are tempted to operate. You know, we're always looking for the, the next big thing. And... I want to be really frank with you and, and just be totally honest with you. And this, because this, this, inclu- this involves all of us. When it comes to leaving one local church to belong to another local church, which happens all the time, Christians and followers of Jesus, you know, we're on this lifelong journey of discipleship. And oftentimes we feel compelled to leave one faith family and, and join another faith family. And that is very often a good thing. And it's a God thing. And God does move people around like that within his, within his church. But the spirit of the world and the spirit of this age will tell you that that's your decision and no one else's. And that you should keep that to yourself. That's a private affair. It's all about you and it's all about what's best for your family. And I just want to challenge you this morning to show me one place in the Bible which promotes that approach and that attitude to decision-making because you won't find it. You won't find it in God's Word anywhere. Read the book of Acts. Read the whole New Testament. What you will find is that over and over again, living for God's glory and being an image-bearer of God, loving others, looking back to the cross, living the good life, it's not a private affair. It's not a solo mission. It's not about you. It's about others. It's always about others. It's about what's best for your gospel community. It's about what's best for your church. And maybe the day will come when it is necessary for you to leave one faith family, maybe this faith family, and join another faith family. And that will be Hopefully a time where God makes it clear this is what's best for you. It is what's best for us. And we can celebrate it together, which is something we've been trying to do. In Philippians 2, the Apostle Paul talks about how our lifestyle as disciples relates to the cross of Jesus. And this is what he says in Philippians chapter 2. He says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. 
Each of you should look not to your own interests, but rather to the interests of others. And then he goes on to talk about how Jesus lived. That's exactly how Jesus lived. That's what drove Jesus to the cross, was others. Now, one of our four core values as a church is relationships. Relationships is one of our four core values. Our core values are, they help us make decisions as a church. It's, it's our four, four core values define why we do what we do. Our core values are gospel, relationships, movement, and multiplication. And on our website, we, we sort of explain what the core values mean. And here is what, uh, how we define core values on our website. We, it, it's uh, stated this way. Relationships between people and families are where genuine love and commitment happen. We express this through thriving small group environments and worshiping and serving together. That's how we explain our core value of relationships and why they're so important to us. And that whenever we make a decision as a leadership team or as a church, we consider how it will affect relationships because relationships are often what drive growth in in Christ, growth in our faith. Now, I don't know many people who would disagree with our definition of relationships. I mean, it's kind of general. Um, But the fact is that gospel relationships should be totally countercultural. And, and very risky at times. And so what if we added this to our explanation of how we display our value of relationships? We also expect one another to make decisions with regard to the implications for the church and to make significant decisions in consultation with the church. Now, wait a minute. Now we're getting personal, aren't we? I mean, are you telling me that the church has the right to get into my personal business? Are you telling me that we would all be better off if we got more involved in each other's lives? Are you telling me that whenever I make a significant decision, like to move my family or to take this job or to propose to that girl or to go back to school or to invest in this new business or to buy this new car or to stop having children or start having children and so on, that the church has any business influencing that decision? Yes, that's exactly what we're saying. Listen, listen, I hear people say all the time, we need to go back to the way it was in the early church. We need to unlock the power of the Holy Spirit and experience the glory of God the way the early church did. If that's what you want, then get ready to make yourself very vulnerable to a lot of people who don't know you very well right now. You'd better get ready to submit yourself to this, to this body of Christ because that's exactly how the early church operated. That is what made them unique. They lived as a family. They did not pursue Christ or pursue glory or pursue meaning or pursue purpose or pursue wealth or education on their own. They did everything together. They even made decisions together. That's how they lived. That's what made them so radical. That's what made them so appealing to so many people. How can this many people stay together and function that way and continue to tolerate one another and actually love each other? How's that possible? See, and our problem today is that we've been conditioned to approach every decision thinking, this is about me. This is about just my, myself and my wife and my kids. It's about our family. 
You know, those are my decisions to make and no one else's. It's my money. It's my life. It's, it's my future. So it's my decision. Where I work, what I do with my money, what I do with my home and my family are all things that fall within the scope of my personal autonomy. That's how we're conditioned to think. And personal autonomy, according to so many, that's the essence of the good life, right? It's all about being, having the freedom, financial freedom and health and the freedom to, to decide, you know, what to do, where to do it, when I want to do it. That's what many people are chasing today. And in a culture where my individualism is celebrated and where my independence is cherished and protected, it's my willingness to lay down my rights and submit myself to a local body of Christ that will lead me to experience the glory of God in my life. That's, that's how we display the glory of God. Because my life is not about me. It's, my journey is not about me, it's about others. In Acts, 2 chapter, uh, in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47, we get this awesome picture of gospel community. And what's happening here in the early chapters of Acts is Jesus has been crucified, he rose again, he, he stayed on the earth for about another 40 days, he appeared to about 500 people, and he ascended back to his father. And after Jesus ascended, the disciples were all assembled together in Jerusalem for the Passover. And there are only about 120 people left. You know, there were thousands of people that followed Jesus all over Palestine when he was alive. But by the time he was crucified and rose again, there were only 120 people that decided that, that were still, you know, devoted to Jesus. 120. And then the day of Pentecost came. And the Holy Spirit came down on the apostles. And Peter got up and he preached that relatively brief sermon if that's all of it, in Acts chapter 2. And the people were cut to the heart and they asked, what, are we, what should we do? And Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And 3,000 people in one day were added to the church. The church went from 120 to 3,000 people. They were all baptized. I mean, talk about explosive growth. I mean, wouldn't you think that would be utter chaos? But it's not. Here's what we read next. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who believed were together, and they had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all. In other words, people, they had all this money and houses and all these possessions and they decided, this isn't mine. It's not about me anymore. And, as a, and day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Can that kind of gospel community be experienced today. I'd like to share a little bit about my journey with you. And some of you maybe have heard this before, and, and so just bear with me if you have. But about 19 years ago, God introduced me to a gospel community that would change my life. And at the time, I had a lot of problems in my life. 
I, I believed in Jesus, but I had all kinds of problems. I had a drug addictions, and there was sexual impurity. I had financial debt. At the time, I was a college dropout living in my parents' basement. And then through a series of what I would call miraculous events, I decided to follow Jesus Christ and leave everything else behind. About two weeks later, an old friend of mine who I hadn't seen in about 10 years invited me to this thing called The Gathering. And I was like, The Gathering? What is that? It sounds like a cult or something. I didn't know what it was, to be honest with you. I didn't even ask many questions. I didn't have much, really anything better to do. So I decided to go, and we go to this YMCA on a Thursday night, and we walk down a hall into a, you know, a relatively large room, much smaller than this. You know, it probably sat about 50 people. And there were about 40 people gathered around just talking, and eventually we all found a seat, and we sat in a big circle, which made me really uncomfortable. In fact, they made me introduce myself to the whole group, which was terrifying. Because that's just not, I'm not an extroverted person. I did not like that at all, but I did it anyway. And then they started singing songs about Jesus. And I didn't know most of the songs, even though I grew up in the church. So I kind of pretended to, you know, to know a little bit here and there. And then I, I'll never forget this. I remember this one guy was singing so loudly and so horribly. His voice was just awful. He's completely tone deaf. But I had never heard anyone sing with such passion in all my life. His eyes were closed. His hands were lifted in the air. And his very bad voice was ringing through the room. And he didn't seem to care at all how off-key he was. He seemed to be oblivious to the fact that he sounded so bad. And no one, no one even seemed to notice no one, I mean, I, I just was looking like, doesn't anyone realize how bad this guy is? And nobody seemed to notice at all. And after a few weeks, by the way, of going back, and I, I started looking forward to hearing this guy. Because I knew he was one of the few people I'd ever known that was singing just for Jesus. Nobody else. And I found myself wanting to hear his voice above everyone else's. You know? Just picture Pastor Scott singing. And, but much, much more, let me finish. But someone who's even louder... And that can't sing on key at all. Unlike Pastor Scott, who has a beautiful voice. And then we sang like eight songs. We sang like what felt like forever. And then a, a guy got up and he started talking about Jesus. And reading from his Bible. And I don't know if it was because of what he said or who he was. Or if, it was, if I was just in a place where I was finally ready to listen. But I remember thinking I've never heard anyone talk about God this way before. And I remember thinking, I could listen to this guy talk all night about this. And then we sang a bunch more and, and spent about the last half hour or so just, just talking to each other. And there was just something about these people. Even though I could tell they came from different backgrounds and had different interests and they were different ages and sometimes different races, they were genuinely interested in one another. I could tell they really cared about each other. And I, and I grew to find out that they actually loved each other, that they would do anything for each other. And when I left that night, I had this overwhelming sense of joy and hope, completely opposite of when I arrived. And I couldn't wait to go back. And what I came to find out is that in this small group of disciples were some of the most real and devoted followers of Jesus I had ever met. I mean, none of, it, none of them were in it for themselves. None of them had a, a personal agenda. None of them cared where you came from. They only cared about where you were going. 
And after some time, the group decided to move from the YMCA to this indoor pavilion a few miles away. And even though the location and the room were different, it didn't matter. The pe- it, was still, it was the same people. It was all about the people. They still treated each other the same. And, and, and they loved each other. And there was this feeling of awe and excitement about what was possible if we just followed Jesus together. And that sense just began to grow. And after a few months, one of the leaders of the gathering, he began to invite me to his house along with another young man who was kind of new to this Jesus life. And we would go to their house every week and his wife would cook us these delicious meals. And, and, and while she was cooking and preparing everything, uh, me and these, this, this, uh, this, one of these leaders and this other guy, we would memorize the Bible verses together. And he told us to buy these mini cassette recorders. You remember those? They're about this big and those were pretty high tech back in the day. And we would record our voices saying the passage into the cassette recorders, and then we'd exchange them. And then during the week, if we were driving or working or whatever, we would listen to each other recite this Bible passage until we had it memorized. And then the next week, we'd come together and we'd recite it from memory to one another. And we'd even write the verses out in a little notebook. And I just remember that being a time of incredible growth in my life. And his wife was incredibly kind to me. She's always asking me questions about my life and always ready to serve my every need. I had nothing to offer them. I was a complete mess. And yet they treated me like royalty. They treated me with respect and with love. And while all this was happening, my affection for Jesus was just growing by leaps and bounds. And I realized that I was becoming one of them. Or at least I thought I was. Until something happened. Not in the group, not in them, but in me. I was carrying around a lot of baggage from my past that I wasn't ready to let go of. I wasn't comfortable being in an environment where I might be, be expected to say something spiritual. I wanted my faith to be personal and I wanted it to be under my control and I didn't want these People, these godly men and women who I respected and cared about, to see who I really was under the surface. I was afraid that if they knew my secrets and if they knew my temptations and that I still was tempted and that I still failed, that they might look at me differently and that they might not accept me anymore. And I didn't want to hurt them or disappoint them, but more than that, I really wanted to avoid discomfort and embarrassment and pain. I was carrying around shame. Remember we talked about shame last week? That's what I had. I was carrying this burden of shame and guilt around. And so I left. I left the gathering. And I went to this church called New Hope. (laughs) Some of you heard of it. And I knew some people at New Hope. And New Hope at the time was much larger. It was like 150 people maybe or maybe a little smaller than that. But New Hope was the kind of church where as long as you looked and acted the part and you got involved and you stayed busy with church activities, no one would pry into your life too much or ask you questions that were too personal. And I thought that was okay with God. I just wasn't comfortable admitting to other Christians that I still struggled with temptations in my past and that I sometimes gave in to those. And that I desperately needed prayer and desperately needed help. And I wasn't comfortable listening to other people's problems or trying to help them. Because I had enough problems of my own. 
and I thought it was all about me. Well, that approach to community (laughs) and that approach to God didn't last very long. And God used the people of New Hope to make it real clear that my life is not about me. The good life is always about others. And I eventually had to learn through a very painful but incredibly valuable process that, in, that, that changes a community pro- project. That there was no way I was ever going to grow and there's no way I was ever going to arrive at God's best future for me if I kept hiding from his people. Now on the night that Jesus was betrayed and arrested, he shared one last meal with his disciples. And he closed the night by talking to his father in front of the disciples. It's what we typically call the high priestly prayer. And Jesus' prayer is recorded for us in John 17. And, and before they all got up and they left the upper room and they crossed the Kidron Valley to the garden where, where Jesus would be taken away and tried and, and the next morning hung on a cross. This is what Jesus prayed. And I'd like you to hear this prayer and listen very carefully because he's praying for us. And this is what he said. Father, I am praying not only for these disciples but, all, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Father, I want these whom you have given me to be with me where I am. Then they can see all the glory you gave me because you loved me even before the world began. O righteous Father, the world doesn't know you, but I do. And these disciples know that you've sent me. I have revealed you to them and I will continue to do so. Then your love for me will be in them. And I will be in them. You know, we've been talking about God's glory over the last few weeks. And there's one thing that we want to make really clear. And that is that if you want to experience God's glory in your life, it's going to happen in community. It's not going to happen on your own. It's never going to happen that way because it's not about you. That's God's way. It always has been. It always will be. It's not about you. It's about others. Will you join me in prayer? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ. We thank you, God, that on the cross we see how sinful and how wicked we are. We see, Lord, your wrath poured out on sin. We see our desperate need for a Savior and a substitute. And at the same time on the cross, Lord, we see your justice and your mercy. We see, God, your compassion and your love for us as Jesus hung there in our place, to die for our sin, to receive our judgment so that we could be called your sons and daughters. We thank you for the cross of Jesus, Lord. We thank you that we are forgiven, that we are set free. We thank you that we no longer have to carry around guilt and shame 
We are accepted and we are loved and we have been adopted into your family to enjoy this life together in community with others who have been transformed from the inside out. And we pray, Lord, that here at Cross Point Church and, and, at, and we, we, I mean, it's not even about us, Lord. It's not about Cross Point. We pray for Epicos. We pray for Southbrook. We pray for Faith Bible Church. We pray for Lake Point. We pray for Grace Community Church. We pray for Luther Memorial Church and, and all the churches, Lord, that you've brought into our lives to partner with us and to, to help us and to grow with us. We pray, Lord, that we would realize that our life with you is not just about us and you. It's about growing in a community of believers who would die for one another because of your great love for us. Help us to remember, Lord, that it's not about me. It's not about me. Help us to look, look away from ourselves and look to you and to see all the people you've placed around us and to love them. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.